I'll go ahead and encourage you, church, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. As we began our foray into the New Testament last week, as we've moved along in this year-long process of walking through the Bible in our personal Bible readings, if you've been tracking along with us, uh, or just moving through the Bible uh, as a chronological story in our times together here, preaching through God's Word. But uh, So this will mark our second sermon in the New Testament and when it comes to the Gospels, there's an overabundance of things for us to glean from the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we could certainly spend a lifetime uh, just mining the Gospels for all the truths therein. However, what piqued my interest in moving from last week, where we were in Matthew chapter 5 and the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw Jesus uh, proclaim that, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophecy. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so we emphasized and saw there that he is the fulfillment of the law and all therein. So what piqued my curiosity as I, I read ahead in the Gospel of Matthew uh, was the amount of times Jesus explained his death to his followers. And yet, even to the end, they could not conceive it. And so today I want us to tackle the question of why was it necessary for Jesus to die? I, I want us to understand why it was absolutely essential that Jesus not just suffer, but specifically die for you and me. Because if we aren't convinced of this, if we aren't absolutely confident of the necessity of Jesus' death, then we can't be confident on the sufficiency of his death, nor the abundance of hope that his resurrection provides us. Now, this may seem like an elementary principle, like, oh man, like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, we, we learned that uh, from the very beginning, right, uh, of, of who Jesus was and what he came to do. However, in my experience, it is a crucial part of our faith that not enough Christians have a thorough understanding of. I've Heard many sentiments before of how Christians wish they could have stopped Judas or how much they hate Judas or, or just their despise for the, the transaction there. If you come away from the story of Jesus stirred to emotion by Judas, you've misread the story of Christ and misinterpreted the gospel. Just a little over a year ago, we saw Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, Republican from Colorado, was speaking at a Christian conference, and she attempted to use the death of Christ as a reason for the defense of gun rights. Boebert said this. On Twitter, a lot of the little Twitter trolls, they like to say, oh, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. How many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? And then she said this. Well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. And this, this is what they think of when, when, when they think of Jesus' death. We see this type of thinking all too much, this placating to, to belittling the death of Christ, to being simply the act of a government rather than the act of a sovereign God using a government and even using the most horrible, tragic things of this world to accomplish his good purposes. 
David Platt calls the cross of Christ the centerpiece of all history and the determinant of our eternity. Charles Spurgeon has this to say on the cross. Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. E. Stanley Jones says this, the cross is the key. If I lose this key, I fumble. The universe will not open to me, but with this key in my hand, I now hold its secret. Without a thorough understanding of Scripture and what it has to say of us and Christ and Christ's death, it can be all too easy for us to fall into similar, shallow, superficial forms of faith. It can be all too easy to mold our faith to fit our desires instead of the other way around. So let's look to the book. I'll encourage you to stand and honor the reading of God's word once again as we read our initial text for this morning coming from Matthew chapter 27 and verse 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we seek to have a rock-solid biblical understanding of the necessity of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf and all that it accomplished for us. And God, I pray that this understanding would move us to a life filled with obedience to that example that was set for us and seeking to crucify the flesh that we would live a life that is glorifying and pleasing to you through the strength of your Holy Spirit and presence at work within us. God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word for the edification of your church and the glorification of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, again, last week we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and there we saw that Jesus said of himself that he is the very fulfillment of the law. So the entirety of the law finds its perfect completion in Christ. Therefore, it is by being found in Christ that his righteousness, according to the law, is imparted onto us who have never nor could ever keep the law. Now, this is the very thing which Jesus appeals to upon his disciples' resistance to his arrest. Before our verse for this morning, if you back up just a little bit to chapter 26, verse 53, we see how Jesus' disciples, this is obviously toward the end of his time, this is at the, in, on the precipice of the crucifixion, and he's gone through all these different sermons that he's taught. He has gone through all these different uh, healings. He's gone through all these different spe specific times when he taught just the disciples. And what is the disciples' reaction upon the crowds coming to arrest him? Chapter 26, verse 50 
3, we see that upon them coming to seize him, we see uh, Peter struck the ear of the high priest and cut off his ear. So then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in his place. Verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So again, he's pointing to his perfect fulfillment of the scriptures and that his arrest, death are necessary as a part of that. Continue, verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So what was it that as Peter sought to pull his sword and defend Jesus to the hilt, Jesus tells him to put the sword away? Because does he not think that he has the power to call out to the Father and save himself in this moment? This is the clear theme that Matthew didn't just want his readers to understand, but Jesus wants all believers to know that his death was essential. And upon Telling Peter to do so, he points once again that this is what must happen so that the scriptures be fulfilled. Not only that, but that his death was essential, not based on some in-the-moment decision, but based on what God had ordained from eternity past. So he's referring to the Old Testament once again here, that the Old Testament must be fulfilled in him and that his death is essential. The point that Jesus gets to here is God's complete sovereignty. When Peter's desire is to grab the sword and go to Jesus' defense, what is Peter saying in this moment? He's saying that Jesus is not strong enough to defend himself, not in control enough, not who he said he was. If Jesus needs Peter's sword, he's not the son of God not the second person of the Trinity, and not in control. Peter doesn't think Jesus needs to die. Not only that, Peter doesn't see that Jesus must die. How many of us are in this mindset? You have a loose understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do, but you don't see why it was absolutely necessary for him to die. Without understanding God as he's revealed himself in his word and ourselves as separated from God by sin, we will never understand the cross. If we don't understand God as he's revealed himself and we don't understand ourselves in light of that, we can't make sense of the cross. If we are mostly good spiritually, and able to tell right from wrong with only in need of a few tweaks needed in our lives. Like, sure, we're mostly good. We just do a few bad things. We make bad choices every now and then. And we think that so, uh, not only of ourselves, but if we think that of others, then what need do we have of a cross? This is why we must carry with us the biblical definition 
of ourselves and and understanding of who God is. The law reveals to us that this is not, nor has it ever been the case. Since our first father, Adam, plunged us into our sinful condition, we have been separated from God, unable to close that separation ourselves. You see, Jesus had to die to fulfill the law. He made this plain himself here to Peter as he made it plain last week in Matthew 5 that he came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. He is the ultimate completion of the law. What a bolstering truth that Jesus' death didn't come because of the decision of the rulers of this world. It didn't come because he didn't have enough AR-15s, nor the prince of power of the air. Rather, it came about by the providence of God the Father. The law points us to the reality that we are totally depraved, separated from God, in need of a radical change in order to be redeemed. So don't deceive yourself by listening to the prevailing voices of the world. There are none good. In the words of the late R.C. Sproul, why do bad things happen to good people? That happened once and he died willingly. As we move back to our text for this morning, we see Jesus, we see this willingness that Jesus has, that even as he's before Pilate and he's being given the opportunity to defend himself, he does not. And Pilate marvels at this just a few verses later. If you jump from our our initial text, verses 11 through 14, jump there to chapter 7, verse 24, we read this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate is amazed there in verse 14, and he's so amazed that he just realizes there's nothing to be gained of this. This man who I know is innocent is not going to even defend himself, so he washes his hand of it, and he delivers Jesus to be scourged, that is, beaten. Why was it that Pilate was amazed at Jesus' silence regarding his own defense? I would say that it was because if anyone had a thorough first-hand knowledge of what lay ahead for Jesus, should he not be able to offer up a defense, it was Pilate. Pilate knew exactly what the next steps were and where it would lead and the end result that it would lead to. But this is exactly what was spoken of Jesus in Isaiah 53. I'll encourage you to turn to Isaiah 53. Keep your hand there in Matthew 27. We're coming right back. But in Isaiah 53, we read this. As the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah of the coming salvation, speaking directly of Jesus, we read this in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, Jesus had to die to fulfill the law and to fulfill God's will. So, because nothing happens in all creation outside of the counsel of God's will, we need to understand that Christ's suffering and death were part of God's sovereign plan to fulfill the law and his will. So as Christ is the perfect fulfillment, so he goes to the cross. As Christ is walking obediently to the will of the Father, as we see him pleading with the Father in Gethsemane, yet if this be your will, take this cup from me. And it becomes abundantly clear that it was the Father's will that he maintained that cup. We see Christ as the perfect fulfillment of the law and walk in perfect obedience to fulfill the will of the Father. We read this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Don't miss what we just read right there just in verse 10 alone. Because, you know, the eloquent nature of the author of Hebrews here, he opens with, it was fitting. And then he goes on to give all this great description of all that was accomplished through this fitting act. But we haven't gotten to the fitting act until we get to the other side of should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's what fitting goes with. That's the fitting part. Perfect through suffering. Now, just consider that. The author of Hebrews here is saying that it was right, that it was to be so, that it was necessary. That's all that's encapsulated there in that word fitting. That it was fitting that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. You continue to verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that fitting source, that fitting nature goes on not only to he who sanctifies, but to who else? To those who are sanctified. That's us, church. All have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Because we all receive the right of the firstborn son through Christ. So what do we see? Did you, did you catch that? Jesus' suffering and sacrifice make him exceedingly perfect. Oh, that we would even begin to obtain even the most minute grasp of the perfection of God's eternal providential plan in Christ. How much more then would we honor him with our lives? Yet, 
we have all made a mockery of him by rejecting his sovereignty for our own. The self-centered motives we possess, the self-serving deeds we perform, the degrading thoughts that we conjure up, all of it an affront to God's sovereignty. This is what has separated us from God since we were brought forth in iniquity, leaving us justly deserving of the punishment for such, which is God's wrath. Yet, it is in the cross of Christ that we see that wrath placed elsewhere. The law shows us all this and points to the necessity of our debt being paid. Yet Jesus had to die to pay the ultimate price for sin and set the standard for his church. Again, we saw there in Hebrews 2 that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We go on to read this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter proclaims of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, how did we come to be a people of his own possession? He paid the price necessary to bring us back to himself. What are the purposes of that? That we may follow that same standard, dying to self and living a new life that would proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the primary standards he sets for us besides dying to ourselves is that of humility in the face of suffering. If you jump just a few verses ahead there, continuing in the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion to verse 40. We see Jesus is now on the cross between the two robbers. We see those who are passing or deriding him. In verse 40, we see those who are deriding him as he's on the cross, the ultimate form of humiliation, stripped, beaten, nailed to this cross of wood. And we read this, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So he's openly mocked, scorned, rejected. So also, verse 41, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So he's now the ultimate scourge, mocked openly. Not only has he experienced the ultimate physical humiliation, but now he's being verbally humiliated 
as they turn his own words against him and see his humbling as being brought low and staying low. But this is what we see, that Jesus had to die to be ultimately humbled. What did he point to Peter? This must be done, that the scriptures must be fulfilled. That he would not be exalted by the way of the world, by being lifted to a throne, by wielding a sword and, and leading an army to defeat the armies of the world. No, he, this must be done to fulfill the scriptures. That he had to be exalted by being brought low. Jesus had to die to be ultimately humbled. This is what Paul references as he writes to the church at Philippi. Writing on the death of Christ as our example, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, not to be held on to, tightly clung to, wielded. He did not consider this equality with God as something to rule and lord over. Rather, but he willingly emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we're familiar with this verse. Even if it's just loosely familiar with this verse, we, we understand it. We know it. Like he, he humbled himself. This is great. This is awesome. But don't miss what happens here in verse 9, right? That he was in the form of God. He didn't count that as equality, as, as something to be grasped. He emptied himself, takes on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, found in human form, humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, we know that word, therefore. We talk about it all the time. We go back. We see what it's there for. It tells us something about what happened before. So what is it saying is the very foundation, the purpose, the reason which God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. That he humbled himself. Like this is the point. That he humbled himself and it is that humbling that by that humbling that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he humbled himself. Willingly. Taking the form of a servant. Becoming obedient to the will of the Father. Perfectly fulfilling the law to the point of death, even death, the most humbling, humiliating form of death on a cross, taking upon himself the scourge, the, the mocking of these crowds, even those who are being humiliated next to him are mocking him. And this had to happen. It is precisely because of Christ's obedience in and through humble suffering that he has been exalted. Our Savior not only sets the standard for us to die to self, but to obediently live in a state of humility. 
You see, humility is a distinguishing characteristic of God's people. So, in other words, it is possible to be humble and not be in Christ. That's possible. However, the adverse truth, and one that should scare a lot of us, is that it is not possible to be in Christ and not be humble. Because he himself has set that standard for us. That if you want to be with me, you want to be Christ-like, pursue Christ-likeness, humility is a distinguishing characteristic on whether or not you're achieving that. So here's one of the dangerous things about pride, friends. And I saw this quote from Paul Washer to this effect the other day. Pride is so dangerous because it often comes in the form of humility. Humble pride is still pride and needs to be crucified along with the rest of the flesh. And Jesus sets this standard for us. We continue on in the story of the crucifixion, moving to verse 50. And we come to the point where Jesus yields up his spirit. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Don't miss that. And Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So we have here the completion, that fulfillment there of him yielding up his spirit. So even to the doorstep of death, Jesus remained in complete control of his destiny. Once again, putting Peter's actions back in the garden to shame. He didn't need the sword. If he needs the sword, he's not the son of God. And so here we see him on the cross, and even still, it is not until he yields up his spirit that it's complete. Jesus had to die to show himself as the only one who is a truly worthy ransom. Because we have some incredible things that happen here that we're, we're told. So the tombs are open. So before that, we see the curtain from the, in the temple is torn in two. So that separation that we've talked about this morning that is eternal and holy on us is no longer the curtain has been torn, so it's not just a symbolic act here. It's a literal act that symbolizes from top to bottom, this curtain has been torn, and the earth shakes at the tearing of it. And what also happens? The tombs were split. So we see that these saints who had looked forward, these Old Testament saints who had looked to the death of Christ, looked forward to the coming of Christ, trusted in Christ by faith, are raised. Now, don't miss this key uh, happening here in verse 53. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, showing us that Christ's resurrection provides for his saints their own resurrection, pointing us to the beauty of the hope of Easter. But again, 
Christ had to die to show himself as the only one who is a truly worthy ransom. Jump ahead in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. And we see this on full display for us. In Revelation 5, we see John in the throne room. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so what does John do? He, he begins to weep loudly because of this, because no one was found worthy. And then we read this, chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. So he's told of a lion. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So that's an important detail there, that this lamb is standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, and there are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he's told of a lion, sees a lamb standing as if having been slain, and you jump down and we see this slain lamb lion man goes and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, and when he takes the scroll... All the four living creatures, the 24 elders, all fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowl, bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. Jump to verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now don't miss what comes next. This next little three-letter word. For. So you are worthy. Why? We're about to see. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ's death should make us of all people the most exceedingly gracious people of all. It's before the cross of Christ, we were separated from God's presence. Now it is precisely because of the cross that we have been made worthy because of Christ's worthiness and will sing his praises in his presence for eternity. The cross demands a response. How will you respond? Through rejection of the cross or rather continued rejection or through rejection of self. Because this is the only choice, is to follow and continue the path of lawlessness, the dark path, or to, through being, having your heart pierced by the truth of God's word, seeing the worthiness of Christ and the necessity of the cross for your sake, therefore beginning to walk the well-lit path of truth as he has revealed himself in his word. Because in his word, we see clearly that we are all broken and sinful. 
and that only through the radical effects of what Christ has done on the cross can we be made new and find new life through his resurrection. And so the challenge before you, the application of this before you today is church, if, if you are in Christ, to humble yourself even greater. Follow that model of humility which took our Savior to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it's that exact thing which exalted him. If you are in Christ, seek to reflect, find yourself emboldened by these truths and live them out. If you are not in Christ, though, the decision before you, again, is clear. Continue with rejection of him and live to your heart's desire and content until the end of time and you find yourselves forcefully bending the knee before the Lamb rather than willingly and then be eternally separated or reject yourself now, follow in obedience to this pattern, this symbol given to us in Christ and be forever made new. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. As we move now into our time of response, Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us through the working of your Holy Spirit, moving and working through your word to respond accordingly as your word has pierced us. God, I pray that those who are found in you would be edified through this today, edified and encouraged. I pray that those who are not in you, that you would draw them to yourself by the truth of your gospel, that you would move them to repentance, to seek a new life in you. God, that you would move that person to reach out to uh, a brother or sister that's on their, their right or their left, or if they need to, to find me up front and seek on how to follow you and repentance and forgiveness of sins and to seek to live a new life in you. Pray that you have blessed this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.